Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nimnick. Great to be back on the mic with you guys for another episode. Going to be a good one. I'm going to be spilling my guts. Got another question and answer podcast coming up. Um, you know, recently here on my Instagram page, I made a post, asked guys to post some specific questions. And, uh, you know, there were a ton of them on there. It was a tough picking, you know, the best six I thought, or not necessarily the best six, but maybe the best six that I thought would make for the best conversation, the best, uh, you know, topic coverage here. So should be good. We're going to talk a, a little bit about calling Bobcats. We're going to talk about using coyote vocals or coyote bass sounds versus prey distress sounds, being efficient, getting in and out of stands and how that helps throughout the day, you know, getting to more stands and hopefully killing more coyotes. Um, talking about planning a trip somewhere out of your home state to go kill coyotes. Um, maybe talk about a specific example of, of calling some flat farm country. I know some of you listen to that, this right now or are dealing with that. You know, how do you get in and out of stands without coyotes seeing you? Um, you know, dealing with dirt roads every mile, things like that. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the full moon, moon phases and things like that. Uh, get a lot of questions on that. So I'm going to give you my take on that. But before we get going, I need to thank the sponsors of this episode, which are Sig Sauer Optics and Onyx Hunt Maps. Now, Sig Sauer scopes, I've been using them now. This is my really my first full season using them. I started using them a little bit towards the end of last season. Um, and I'm sold, man. I, you know, I love the technology in them. The optics is great. I love the price range. You know, it's not realistic to think that every coyote hunter is going to be able to drop, you know, two, three thousand bucks on a on a rifle scope. Um, you know, heck, that's dang near thermal range, you know, there. So um, for me, I've always shot scopes right in that thousand dollar range, you know, whether I was shooting my loopholes before the Sig Sauer or whatnot. Um, you know, and Sig offers just a, a phenomenal line of scopes in that range. You know, I'm shooting the 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 Sierra Six BDX scope right now. I love the bang for the buck that you get, you know, in, in some of these other scope manufacturers to get that 6X magnification, you have to go up to the, you know, higher end to $2,500 scopes. Well, you know, now I can shoot a five to 30 um, scope, you know, somewhere in that, you know, $1,100 range. And I have the BDX option, which is just phenomenal. The speed, um, the technology, and it just blows my mind. The fact that it's, it's Bluetooth linked up to my, you know, Kilo 3000 range finders binos um and you know once you once you download the app enter the information into your app all your ballistic profile it syncs that to your rangefinder and then you don't need your phone ever again it's synced into your rangefinder your rangefinder binoculars sync into your scope so all i have to do is turn on my scope shoot a range and, and my dot hold instantly comes up on my reticle in my scope so uh you know if you have a three four five hundred yard shot all i do is boom put the dot right on the coyote now you obviously have to factor in the wind, which is always the, the challenging part, especially shooting like a 223, like I do, um, especially out here where it's usually windy. Um, that's always the, the challenge killing them out there that far. But if you can get the wind figured out, the up and down is always dead on. So um, if you're looking for something new, looking for something to add, maybe not, not necessarily going to break the bank, but you know, you're going to have great quality. My rifle rides around in my truck for five months straight, banging around, bouncing around and not once have I had to recite my rifle in, which is huge to me. You know, it just gives you that, that confidence, you know, stand after stand that, you know, when I squeeze the trigger, that bullet's going to go right where I have the crosshair. So that's huge. So if you're looking for, uh, you know, optics, maybe a rangefinder binoculars, uh, even a little reflex sight on a 45, uh, you can go to sigsour.com and check out, you know, all the optics that they have to offer. Now with Onyx hunt maps, um, huge resource that I use. Um, I'm 
probably assuming that most people listening to this in this day and age probably have this on your phone now. Um, if you don't, it's definitely something you need to look into. Uh, you can go to their website, which is onxmaps.com. You can actually go to your app store on your phone and, and download the app. It's super easy. Um, I run the elite membership, which is a hundred bucks a year. To me, that's a steal. For that hundred bucks a year, you get national land ownership maps, meaning every state, you're going to have access to all the information for every state. Even though you might not hunt it, maybe you're only going to travel to a couple different states potentially to hunt coyotes. Um, that's going to be huge. Also, it's going to give you the Canada hunting maps as well as unlimited offline maps. Now, you know, if you're using your phone um, and you don't have signal out there, you can store and save these on offline maps so you can still pull them up and access them even though you don't have phone signal, which is huge, especially where I go. A lot of times there's not always a cell phone signal there. So, um, you know, that's huge. And then also as part of that elite membership, you're going to get elite exclusive pro deals with other partner companies that they have um, that you can get on there as well, which is always a big bonus. So if you're not into the Onyx game, do it now. You'll love it. You can go to onyxmaps.com for more information. Well, before we get into the question and answer session, um, I thought I'd give you guys just kind of an update on how my season's going. You know, although you're listening to this maybe in January, even later, um, I'm actually recording it right before Christmas. Um, you know, I've been hunting coyotes now for a little over two months. It, it's been a great start to the season, a great first half of the season, I guess you could say. Um, I think right now I'm at 191 coyotes. Um, you know, which is right where my goal normally is, uh, you know, every year I kind of set goals for myself on where I think, you know, what kind of numbers I should get. That's usually how I base my success off, off of is, is the number of coyotes I kill each year. And, and I usually say, Hey, you know, if I can get 200 coyotes, um, by the turn of the turn of the year, you know, that's great, you know, and that gives me a chance, you know, by the end of the season, at least my personal season, when I quit, you know, by the, you know, first part of March, you know, I can get to that 300, 350 mark somewhere in there. So, um, you know, obviously you expect more coyotes in the first half of the season. You know, we've talked a lot about that before on these podcasts about just the dynamic and, and, uh, the life cycle of coyotes and what to expect the, the early in the season, first half of the season versus later in the season. You know, now I'm going to be hunting my places for the second, even maybe third time here over the next couple months. Um, there's just less coyotes and, um, you know, you're not going to expect to, to pile them up, but you know, you're still going to kill some coyotes. Hopefully if you, if you, you know, put the system together, a plan together to, you know, manage your properties and things like that, which we've all talked about, but, uh, but no, it's been a great season. I've been uh, to a handful of States already. We just got back from a filming trip in Arizona. Um, although we didn't pile them up like we have in the past, it was still a fun trip. It's always great going down there and hunting in hoodies, especially, you know, as we're getting colder, you know, I think today, actually when I'm recording this, I think we're you know, maybe eight below with the wind chill of maybe in the 40, 45 below right now. So definitely a, a great day to be sitting here doing podcasts instead of out calling coyotes. But um, it's just great being able to go and hunt coyotes and hoodies. People ask me all the time, do I love, do I love hunting coyotes in the cold weather? And, and although I do, you know, I've just killed way too many coyotes wearing hoodies and long sleeve t-shirts to really feel like I got to be out there freezing my ass off to kill coyotes. So um, especially as I get older, you know, I, I just, I don't know. There's something about killing warm weather coyotes that I really like, but, um, you know, got a lot of hunts still planned for January and February. Um, we're going to be heading to Rick's here shortly, right after first of the year to, to film some thermal episodes and some raccoon stuff. That's going to be fun. I'm sure about the time you're listening to this, um, those episodes ought to be, you know, launching on YouTube on the lucky duck YouTube page. So be standing by for that. That's always fun. I haven't even broke out the thermal yet. Um, people ask me all the time about, 
you know, what I'm using for thermal and things like that. And, and for me, it's a more of a tool just to go kill coyotes. Um, you know, I hands down like the day hunting, you know, way more for me. It's more of, uh, you know, looking through a thermal, if I'm hunting in Georgia, it looks the same as if I'm hunting in Nebraska, you know, kind of a deal where the day hunting, it's just always different. You can see the train, you, you can see the scenery, things just look different. You know, that's kind of why I guess I'm, I'm more of a day hunter, but you know, for me as a tool for killing coyotes, I'll use the thermal later in the season. You know, after I've hunted my place, you know, two or three times, um, that's when I kind of break out the thermal to kind of go back out there. And now there might be some, some smarter coyotes running around. Um, you know, things are pressured a little bit more. It's a little bit easier to, you know, to kill coyotes at night. And, uh, and then also you're kind of getting close to that calving season. And just from a predator management standpoint, that's really the only time of year that it really matters is if you're if you're thinning out those coyotes right, you know, during that calving season or right before, um, you know, then you can, then you can say you're actually doing it for predator management. So that's what I'll use it later in the season for. Um, so getting ready for that to, to come up. But other than that, uh, you know, it's been a great, great start so far. So um, on upcoming podcasts here, I'll kind of fill you in on how the, the season progresses and, and uh, how everything turns out. But let's jump into this, you know, I really enjoy doing these question and answer things, uh, podcasts for you guys. Sometimes I get on a, you know, a certain topic and I can't always cover exactly what everybody wants. Um, so my goal is to maybe, you know, I'm putting out about, you know, two podcasts a month, roughly 24 a year. You know, if we can do two or three or four of these, you know, to answer your questions, uh, that's great. You know, then I'm specifically talking about what you guys want to listen to and what you want to learn about. So, uh, makes it great. You know, these questions all came off of my Instagram page. So if you're not following me on Instagram um, and you want to be part of one of these in the future, you know, it's just at Jeff Nimnick on Instagram. That's really the only social media platform I, I go on. It does transfer it over to my Facebook page, but I really don't ever uh, do anything there. But uh, so, yeah, Instagram, if you guys want to get in on this in the future, go ahead and uh, follow me and then uh, you'll see these posts come about and you can answer questions. And who knows, maybe I'll pick your question down the road and and be able to discuss it a little bit. But first question, let's jump right into this. This comes from T-Blades35, and his question is this. All of the coyotes I've called in this year have came into vocals. Not one response to prey distress. Do you think abundance of food or hunting pressure is the reason why? I primarily hunt northeast Kansas walk-in public ground. So before we can start, probably really even answer this, Appropriately, I think we need to talk about terminology. Um, and, and the main main word here is coyote vocals. Now, for me, in my terminology, coyote vocals is a coyote howl. That's it. Whether it's one coyote, two coyotes, multiple coyotes howling a serenade, you name it, that is a coyote vocal for me. Some people refer to as coyote vocals as all the coyote sounds, the coyote fights, the coyote pup distresses, and things like that. Now. I would almost assume for that from this question that he probably throws all of those coyote sounds into that one category, coyote vocals, because he, because he says not one response to prey distress. He didn't say, I haven't got one dis one response to prey distress. Nothing's came into pup distress or coyote fights. All I can get them to come to is coyote vocals. So I would assume that that's, you know, what he's referring to on this question. So, so keep that in mind, you know, when you hear me talk about it, I say coyote-based sounds. Those are the coyote fights, the pup distresses, um, some of the breeding sounds. If I re refer to coyote vocals, 
or Coyote House, those are specifically the house, which if you've listened to my podcast before, you know, I really don't do a lot with the Coyote House. You know, for me, uh, the Coyote Howling is more of a locating tool than anything. Um, and that's not to say it won't work. It's just something that I personally don't do a lot of. Um, I've just always had greater luck with, you know, the co other coyote based sounds, the pup distresses, the coyote fights, the breeding sounds. So when I'm going through, you know, a, a series of sounds on stand, to me, the howling is, is one of those things. It's like, it's almost like I don't have the patience to wait for the howling to play out and for coyotes to respond to that. I'd rather jump right into, um, you know, some of those other coyote based sounds like the pup distresses, the coyote fights and things like that, which seems to invoke a, a little bit more aggressive, fast response out of a majority of the coyotes. But so keep that in mind. Terminology is a big thing to kind of consider when you're throwing out these questions. You're talking that just to make sure we're all on the same page. Now, to kind of dig into this question a little bit deeper, um, you know, he asked, do you think do you think abundance of food or hunting pressure is the reason why he's had more success calling in coyotes um, with these, you know, coyote sounds versus the prey distrounds? Now, a few things you always have to look at here, you know, is it coincidence? You know, I mean, really, if you if you really studied and documented, you know, the sounds you play on every stand, um, you know, is it just because maybe, you know, early on in the stand, you might be playing a prey distress sound. And for whatever reason, maybe you're not running it at a very high volume. Maybe you're picking a prey distress sounds that that's just not naturally loud. And then, you know, for the first four, three, four, five, six minutes, you're playing this prey distress sound. And really that sound is actually only going out to maybe that six, five, six, seven hundred yard range. Well, then all of a sudden you switch over to one of these coyote sounds, whether it's some howls or pup distress or fights. Well, a lot of those sounds are just naturally recorded louder. So at, um, you know, max volume on, let's say, the Lucky Duck Revolt, you know, a, uh, a pup distress sound like schoolyard brawl is going to be louder than a sound like baby cottontail demise at 32. So there's a lot of little little factors that come involved. So for this example, you played that, you know, prey distress sound. That's just not a very naturally loud recording at max volume. And it only goes out to that five, 600 yard mark. Well, no, nothing shows up. Well, let's just say there wasn't a coyote within that six or 800 yard mark. Maybe he was out there at a thousand yards and he couldn't hear it. Well, then all of a sudden you fire up this pup distress or a, a coyote howl or one of these other coyote sounds. Well, it's just a naturally louder recorded sound. And now that sounds traveling out there to a thousand or 1200 yards. And the coyote now finally hears it. And here it comes to the call. That's one of those weird things I always think about, um, you know, when I'm making coyote stands and things happen is, you know, what really happened? Did the coyote sit out there and, and heard the rabbit and just didn't care? And then finally, you know, you played a different coyote based sound and that's what really triggered that coyote to come in. I do think that happens a lot um, only because I've seen it happen. Um, you know, the beauty of calling in some of this big open country that we hunt a lot of, you can see the coyote, you can see the coyotes out there and you can kind of actually watch them, how they react to, to some of the sounds. You know, if you live in the Midwest in the East, obviously your visibility is limited. You know, the coyotes are back on the other side of tree lines and, and, and things like that. And you just can't see, so you don't know what's happening. So, you're, you're kind of making these broad assumptions that maybe they hear it, but they just don't, don't like it. Um, so yeah. So you always look at things like that. Is that the reason why the coyote showed up late? Um, or did he just like the new sound, you know, could, could it be too, because maybe you just play those sounds more, 
you know, what percentage of your stand are you playing prey distress sounds versus coyote based sounds? You know, if you're only playing prey distress sounds for the first three or four minutes, but you're sitting there for 15 or 20 minutes um, and then playing coyote based sounds for that other 15 minutes, well, you're playing coyote based sounds for 75% of your stand. So you would think too, that you're probably going to call in more coyotes um, with those coyote based sounds, just because you're playing those sounds more. So there's always just a lot of weird little things that come into play that I think about that. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to. I think a lot of this is just theory. You know, there's, I wish there was a way that we had some crystal ball that we could, we could see this coyote sitting out there that we really can't see with our naked eye, but we could see how he was reacting uh, and what he was doing. And then even then, I believe if, even if we could see that happen, I still think that a lot of, not every coyote's the same, you know, every coyote's you're going to act a little bit different. I think coyotes are just wired a little bit different. You know, I think you have some coyotes are just naturally more aggressive. Some coyotes are just not that aggressive right from birth. Um, and then obviously there's other, you know, environmental factors, pressure and, you know, the terrain and, and just various things like that, that affect all of this. So, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's a unique question, you know, to really give you an exact answer of why it is, why that you're calling in more coyotes to these coyote based sounds or coyote vocals, as opposed to prey distress sounds, you know, in your question, you're kind of referring to maybe there's a lot of maybe too much food. Maybe the coyotes are just hungry or, or full, actually not hungry at all because there is an abundance of food. And that could be the case, but you know, hunger is really you know, only one of the reasons why a coyote comes to the call. I mean, I usually refer to about three other reasons why a coyote will come to the call. Another one is, is just uh, curiosity. Um, I think a lot of times coyotes, you know, I, for example, you know, I, I talked about this just briefly earlier, you know, when it comes to coyote hunting, it's just a lot of theory. Like we all have our theories, but it's based off a very, very small sample size. And, you know, over the years, I have called coyotes off of dead cows with rabbit distress obviously the coyote was not hungry he was just had a belly full of dead cow meat but yet he came running four five six hundred yards over to me when i started you know playing some rabbit in distress well obviously it wasn't because he was hungry there's got to be other reasons and to me it's more of a curiosity thing it could be a territorial thing and then i've talked about that kind of that parental family group kind of instinct uh that coyotes have as well so you got to think about that as well that you know, just because there's an ample amount of food sources out there, you know, coyotes will still come to those prey distress sounds. Now, the other part of that is, is hunting pressure. And, and of course, I mean, hunting pressure is probably one of the biggest things that, that is a detriment to us. You know, coyotes get smart extremely fast. Um, you know, I like to think that you're going to get one good crack at a coyote, but once you mess that up and, you know, educated or pressure that coyote, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, that coyote is, you know, maybe, I don't know if I had to put a number on it, you know, five to 10 times harder to call in the next time, just because he's that much more wary. He's that smarter. And, you know, it's just tough to kill him. And, you know, time is really the only thing that I found to, you know, be a, a factor when it comes to killing those educated coyotes. If they're constantly getting pressured and pressured and pressured and pressured and pressured, you know, they're going to be damn near impossible to get killed, at least calling them in, you know, that's where the thermal and the trapping and everything else will come into play to kill those coyotes out. But, um, yeah, when those coyotes get smart, it, it's tough. And, and that could be a reason why too, that, you know, maybe you aren't calling those in, you know, he is hunting public ground. And that's the tough part about hunting public ground is you don't really know who else has been out there when they were out there. Uh, 
Uh, it's just one of the one of the hard things about public ground. So um, you could be dealing with with educated coyotes. And, you know, if there was a sound category that I would use if I thought I was hunting, you know, pressured coyotes, it would be those coyote based sounds more of the coyote fights, more of the, the pup distresses, but even then it's, it's not a guarantee. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. They're T blades 35. Um, you know, I guess the biggest thing is, is, is be open to changing up your call sequences. If, if something's not working, if a sequence you're playing isn't working, you know, and you've made a series of stands, you know, don't be afraid to change it up. I think a lot of people are dead set that they have to play some sort of prey distress sound on stand. Like it just doesn't feel right. If, if they don't play a rabbit in distress or a bird in distress, you know, there's a lot of times here, especially in the last half of the season. Um, I won't play any prey distress at all. When I go to a coyote stand, it's all the coyote based sounds, the pup distresses, maybe throwing some of those serenades, you know, it sound like psycho serenade is one of my favorites when it comes to the coyote howls. Um, you know, then start mixing in some of those breeding sounds. And now with the super revolt being able to mix in two sounds at once, you know, now I can take some of those sounds like, for example, like a sound like WTF, um, some of those whiny little pup sounds and mix it in with some of the fights, some of those breeding sounds like female whimpers and, and female estrus chirps and things like that. Mix those in, uh, with some of those coyote fights and some of those other pup distresses, even some of those coyote serenades. And I think you get kind of a unique sound that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a believer in that, you know, if the coyotes have heard it already, they're not going to come, but you know, now maybe I have the opportunity to throw some different sounds at them. If you believe that, then, you know, this is a great opportunity to do that. So, um, you know, keep that in mind as the season progresses. And I think, uh, you know, you'll be able to, to continually kill coyotes. Now, um, you know, the last thing on this, you know, when it comes to that, you know, hunting that public land is, you know, continue to, to, you know, scout out ground and find new areas to hunt. Um, you know, early on in the season, me personally, if I have in my bag of, of access, you know, I have some private ground, some public ground, you know, usually I'll try to, if I think, you know, the public ground's probably going to have more people hunting on it than the private ground I have. Um, I try to base that out over the course of the season where, you know, I'm going to try to hunt that public ground, early in the season, try to be maybe one of the first couple of people to hit that ground and then save some of my private ground for a little bit later in the season as well. And, uh, you know, that'll, that'll help increase your success throughout the season instead of having, you know, success early and then struggling for the last half of the season. So hopefully that had answered your question. T blades. That's a good one. A lot of, a lot of interesting things to kind of contemplate and think about, um, when it comes to that one. Next question comes from Logan Jameson 101. And his question is this, what are your different strategies when you're hunting a bobcat versus a coyote? My biggest goal this year is a bobcat. What kinds of terrain do you look for when targeting a bobcat? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think for a lot of guys, a bobcat is kind of the ultimate trophy, especially if you're a coyote hunter, um, especially if you come from an area where there's not a lot of bobcats. I think that's like the, the ultimate prize is, is calling in and, and killing a bobcat. Um, you know, over the years, you know, I've killed, you know, I don't know, probably a dozen bobcats. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm an expert at it. Um, I don't call in a lot of them here in Western Nebraska, you know, where I spend a majority of my time calling coyotes. We just don't have high densities of, of bobcats. You know, I think maybe over the years I've called in, 
I don't know, maybe two or three is all here. Um, obviously, I've been down with Rick in Kansas and called in a few. I've called in a, a handful down in Colorado. I've called in a, a couple out in Wyoming. But a majority of the Bobcats I've called in have been down in, uh, you know, Arizona. So just to kind of talk about the different strategies, I think you got to start off by understanding the difference between how a coyote responds to the call versus how a bobcat responds to the call. Now, from my experience, a, a coyote is is kind of like, you know, greedy, wants to be the first one there. They're going to they're going to come at a faster pace. They're not worried about being sneaky and and stealthy. You know, they just want to be the first one there. So they're going to jump out usually in the open. They may use the cover a little bit, but it's sooner at some point the coyote's going to pop out in the open. You know, he wants to look, he wants to see what it is that's making that sound, which you're going to have a much better chance of spotting a coyote um, easier. Now, Bobcat, you know, they'll stock the call, you know, most time. Now, I have seen uh, Bobcats come running like a coyote, um, but a majority of the time, the Bobcat's going to stock the call like you and I were stalking a deer or antelope you know, using that cover, staying behind that cover, keeping that, that piece of cover between me and, and whatever I'm stalking and sneak. And then when you get to a certain point, maybe peek around and just to look, um, that's usually what happens, you know, when we call bobcats and luckily the ones that we've called in, we've happened to spot them at some point. And then we know they're there once they check up. Cause a lot of times it seems like the bobcats that, that at least I've called in, at least in this last trip, you know, down in, we were down in Arizona. Uh, we called in three bobcats during those those three days of hunting, um, and all three of those bobcats came on a pretty good pace to the call, and then once they got within that maybe 60, 80-yard range from the call, that's when they checked up. That's when they started really going into stealth mode and using the cover and and being extremely sneaky. So that being said, I think a lot of guys call in bobcats that they don't even know they called in. I mean, they're expecting to see movement and flash from a coyote coming in. You know, bobcats obviously have great camouflage and, and you know, they're sitting back in the in the brush behind a tree, kind of peeking around, not making hardly any movement at all. And I think a lot of guys don't even ever see him and probably get up to leave. And, and the bobcat kind of runs off without him, you know, even knowing that it was there. But so understand that that's how a bobcat's going to approach the call. Now, time on stand is a, is kind of a, a misconception with bobcats, at least that I feel is out there because a lot of guys say, Oh, if you're going to kill a Bobcat, you got to sit there 30, 45 minutes. Uh, to me, that's not the case. I mean, out of all the Bobcats I've called in, I've, we've seen them, shot them, spooked them off, started messing with them in the first three to six minutes. It's, it's really similar to a, to a coyote. Now is a Bobcat going to come running from a thousand yards like coyotes do or 800 yards or even 600 yards? Probably not. I mean, to me, that's part of the challenge of, of killing bobcats is setting up, you know, probably within that, you know, three, 400 yard range tops of where you think that bobcat's going to be. And, you know, at that point, I think the bobcats come approach the call pretty quick and get there, you know, like I said, to that last 60 or 80 yards before they really get sneaky and start using cover. Now, so keep that in mind. I, I'm not doing anything different when I'm targeting bobcats as far as time on stand. I'm still going to keep that the same. I'm not going to sit there for 30, 45 minutes. As you know, I'd never sit there out long for a coyote stand, let alone if I was trying to kill a bobcat. Now, one thing I am going to do, the main difference for me if I'm targeting bobcats or if there are bobcats in the area is, is the sound sequences that I'm playing. 
you know, for example, when we were down in Arizona, um, you know, I was running through a series of about four different prey distress sounds for about the first probably 10 minutes of the, of the, of the stand. Meaning I was playing, for example, I'd play a sound like TNT cottontail for the first two, two to two and a half minutes. Then for the next two to two and a half minutes, I'd play maybe lucky pecker. Then for the next two and a half minutes, I'd play uh, lip squeaks. And then the next two and a half minutes, I would play, um, you know, a, a sound like baby cottontail demise or a Tweety bird or something like that. Now, here's the reason I do that. Out of all the times I've called in bobcats, you know, most of the time I've spotted the bobcat out there, like I said, at that 60, 80 yard range and they check up. And they sit there. Let's say, let's say I'm playing TNT Cottontail, and all of a sudden I see this bobcat, and he checks up behind a, a little piece of cover out there. It's 80 yards. If I continue to let TNT Cottontail play, he'll just sit there. So at that point, I I almost treat it as if I have a coyote that's checked up out there at at you know three four hundred yards. A lot of times, the only thing you can do is start start going through a series of you know pup distresses and other sounds. You know, letting them play for you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds to see if he likes it. If he doesn't switch to a different sound. And that's really your only chance. And a lot of times you might be four, five, six, seven sounds deep. And all of a sudden the coyote decides, okay, here, he's going to come a little closer. And sometimes they don't, they just sit out there um, and they just have made up their mind. They're not coming any closer, but Bobcats, when they get, you know, to that 60, 80 yard mark and check up when I've seen that happen, if I switch to a different prey distress sound, it's like, it regains their attention and here they come. And now that, that bobcat may sneak another 10 or 15 yards closer and then check up again. And then at that point, it's like, he's, he's done with that sound almost. And then I'll go and switch to a different parade of stress sound and it regains his attention. And that bobcat will come another 10 or 20 yards. And then I'll keep doing that until we're able to, you know, get a shot at it, get it close enough to shoot with the shotgun, whatever it may be. So in my mind now, when I'm specifically calling bobcats, I, I picture that scenario unfolding out there, just I'm not seeing it. So that's why I'm rotating through sounds every couple minutes. I really think when you're trying to call bobcats, if you let the same sound play for more than a couple, two and a half, three minutes, you're just wasting time. I think if that bobcat was coming, he'd already be there. He's probably checked up now. He's bored of that sound. It's time to switch it up and, and finish the deal on him. Now, one thing you don't want to do, you know, is start playing pup distress sounds. Now, the crazy thing about this is, you know, we talk about nothing's ever really 100%. And that's the same. I have called in several bobcats on pup distress before. Um, but I, to me, it's probably a weird fluke deal. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to switch to any of the coyote bass sounds till maybe that 10-minute mark, maybe even a little bit later. Um, after I've rolled through a series of three or four or five of those prey distress sounds, and I think, ah, okay, there's just not a bobcat here. Now let's try to target. Maybe there's some coyotes out there that maybe haven't heard this prey distress yet because I, maybe I haven't been cranking the volume hard, you know, but here towards the last maybe three, four, five minutes of the stand, I'm going to crank some pup distress. And then um, who knows, maybe there's a coyote out there at six, 800 yards that finally hears it. And, and maybe we can at least kill a coyote here at the end of the stand. Uh, even though there weren't any bobcats. So that's kind of the strategy I use when I'm calling bobcats. Um, as far as terrain goes, you know, I'm looking for just the gnarliest, thickest stuff within that area that I can find where I think the bobcats are going to be. Um, 
you know, whether it's kind of a, a rock rim, whether it's a thick crick bottom, you know, I've been out with Rick before and, you know, he's called bobcats out of big brush piles um, where, you know, the farmer or rancher has cleared out a bunch of brush and put it in a big burn pile, but they just haven't burned it. Similar to when we call raccoons even. Um, and those bobcats have came out of those brush piles. It's like they, they bed up in there during the day. Um, you know, but yeah, any, just the thickest, gnarliest stuff and, and try to get within, you know, a couple hundred yards uh, of where I, where I think that, you know, area might be, and then try to get yourself just a touch of visibility. I don't think you need a ton of visibility. Um, you know, the great thing about using an e-call with a remote, I think is, is crucial for Bobcats because, you know, Bobcats, like I said, is, are going to stock the, stock the sound just like you or I stalking a, a big game animal, they're going to get a piece of cover between me, uh, between them and the sound, and they're going to come right towards it. If the sound's coming directly from you, it's going to make it extremely hard to see those, see those bobcats making their way to you. But if you're able to get that e-call off to the side, out away from you, you know, 20, 30 yards, whatever it may be, now the bobcat is stalking the e-call, and it gives you a little bit different angle. He's not, he's not trying to hide from you anymore. He's trying to hide from where the sound's coming from. So it gives you a little bit different vantage point to, to potentially spot those bobcats, you know, sneaking through there a little bit easier. So, Hey, guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I wanted to take a second to tell you a little bit about Black Rifle Coffee Company. Now, their mission is simple, to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. Now, they've developed their explosive roast profiles with the same mission focus they learned as military members serving this great country. And they are committed to supporting veterans, law enforcement, and first responders. Now, we all know those first stands of the morning come early, and even those midday stands can be a drag, and caffeine and coffee are our friends. So if you're looking for a new line of hot roast coffees or even some of their cold brews, you can go to their website and see what they have to offer. Now, one thing I want to tell you about is their coffee club subscriptions. These allow for automatic deliveries on your schedule and also give you exclusive discounts with over 50 industry partners. So if you would like more information on these coffee club subscriptions that Black Rifle Coffee Company has to offer, visit blackriflecoffee.com. Now back to the podcast. Keep all that in mind. Um, you know, bobcats are, are really cool. I, you know, I think to me, they're not, they're not near as smart as a coyote. Um, I think the challenge lies in just that there's not as many bobcats out there. There are coyotes. Um, they just don't come running in like a coyote. They stock the call a little bit easier and they're just hard to see. I think that's what, that's the challenge in, in bobcat hunting. Um, but you know, I've had some bobcats that, uh, stood there and looked at us and things way longer than any coyote ever would. Um, you know, so I don't think bobcats are any smarter, but they're a predator. Uh, they just hunt a little bit different and, uh, you know, definitely something that makes it interesting when you are calling in both coyote bobcat country, um, that you have the, the chance to kill one or the other on a stand is always, always awesome. So one of the reasons I love Arizona so much, just because you get a chance at, uh, you know, bobcats, coyotes, and even fox sometimes. So keep all that in mind and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe you'll kill a bobcat this winter. Next question comes from Wesley G7, and his question is this. Other than calling time, what helps cut down time in between stands? I seem to make a stand, get to the next one, load all my stuff, walk, set up, and start. I look at the time and can't believe how much time has passed when I've only drove a few miles. This question is pointed towards contests. That's a good question. You know, efficiency is a big thing, and that's really what this question is about, is about how efficient are you when hunting? 
Now you may be listening to this and be like, well, who cares? You know, I'm like, I'm just out to hunt coyotes for fun of it. You know, if I make three stands this morning, go home, no big deal. You know, you may be like, if I'm a guy that hunts coyotes all day, if, who cares whether I get in 12 stands or 14 stands or 18 stands, I'm just out hunting, having a good time and, and seeing what happens, you know, but me, my mentality has always been, you know, my main goal, whether I'm contest hunting, fun hunting, you know, whatever it may be, my goal is to kill as many coyotes as possible in the time I have to hunt, whether it's a full day, whether it's half day, whether it's just a couple stands, that's my goal. And I, I would assume that's probably most people's goal is I'm going to go out. I want to try to kill as many coyotes as possible in the, a lot of time that I have. And, and that's really where efficiency comes in. And really I'm going to back up a little bit and I'm going to talk about my contest hunting mentality because, you know, Wesley, this is, this is kind of his, he was referring this question towards contests. And, you know, for me, I really hunt contests no different than, than when I do a normal day of, of fun hunting or whatever. Um, the only thing different that I do during contest hunting is essentially the time from when I leave the stand till the time I get to the next stand. That's really where for me, I'm, I'm hustling more in between stands. I ha usually have more of a plan. I'm not, you know, jacking around and, and bullshitting and, you know, just wasting a few minutes here and there. It's, it's, it's getting from A to B, A to B, A to B, A to B all day long, as fast as I possibly can. Now on just a fun hunting day. Okay. You know, I'm not going to push it that hard. You know, I may, we, yeah, we maybe do a little more, you know, BSing and, and, you know, stopping and eating a sandwich or, you know, whatever it may be stopping and talking to the rancher, you know, whoever, but you know, when I sit down on stand, I'm really doing nothing different. Um, whether it's a contest day, um, whether it's, um, you know, just a fun hunting day, you know, I hear a lot of guys say when they're contest hunting, they shorten their stand times down. And to me, that's never really made a whole lot of sense. I mean, if you're out there just hunting for the fun of it, um, you know, if your goal is to kill as many coyotes as possible, I would always, or at least for me, I've always ran the same sound sequence, the same time on stand as I do, you know, when I'm hunting during a contest. Um, so keep that in mind. I think, you know, I wouldn't shorten down stand times just because you're hunting a contest. I mean, I would, I would call no different than you normally would. Uh, don't change anything just because it's a contest, if that makes sense. Now, in between stands, as far as being efficient, contest-wise, I'm going to have a, a very specific plan laid out. You know, when I'm walking into stand A, um, I already know where stand B is going to be. You know, when I'm walking into stand B or walking out of stand B, I already know exactly where I'm going next for stand C and how I'm going to get there. Um, and I have that laid out all day. Now, for me... I usually try to run a two and a half stand per hour ratio throughout the day. Um, and that seems to be a, a good number to hit. And, you know, a lot of that deals with the train you're hunting. Um, you know, how much time are you spending having to drive between stands? Are you hunting a big ranch, a big section of area where you can just maybe drive up the road a half mile or three quarters of a mile or a mile and make another stand and do that all day long? Or are you hunting, little chunks of property scattered across the whole county where you pull in and make one stand and then you got to jump out onto the county road and you got to drive four or five miles and pull into the next one to do that you know obviously if you're having to do that a two and a half stand per hour ratio is probably not going to cut it you're probably you know maybe looking more at one and a half stands per hour you know depending on some drive time in between stands but 
But either way, if you if you set that, for example, let's go back to the two and a half stand per per hour ratio. I can take and say, okay, tomorrow morning, you know, we can start hunting at six thirty. Um, we're going to be able to hunt till about four thirty in the afternoon. That's roughly ten hours of hunting time. Okay, if I'm able to maintain that two and a half, two point five stands per hour, I, you know, should roughly be able to get in twenty five stands. Vice versa, if I think my ratio is one and a half stands per hour, you know, if I got more driving time, then I think I should get in fifteen stands. So at that point, I am going to plot out you know, 15 or 25 stands that I can make that day. And I'm probably going to maybe even throw in a few extra potentially in case maybe I'm ahead of schedule. Um, and then I'm going to also mark out some of those stands in there throughout that middle part of the day to say, you know what, you know, roughly if I think I'm going to make 15 stands a day at that 1.5, uh, an hour mark halfway through the day, um, five hours into the hunt. So roughly around 1130, you know, I'll kind of see what stand I'm on. You know, I should be somewhere around stand seven or eight. If I'm only on stand five, then I'm like, you know what, for whatever reason, maybe you, maybe you tracked a wounded coyote, maybe something you got stuck, maybe something weird happened in there, you know? So then I'm going to have, okay, in the middle part of the day, I'm going to, I'm going to scratch maybe stand nine and 10, <clears throat> you know, in the middle part of the day and, and leapfrog from stand eight to stand 12. And then now, you know, I want to, you know, still get in stands 12, 13, 14, and 15 in this last, uh, you know, couple hours of the day. So I'll have a contingency plan in there to, to, to do that. So, um, you know, that's really how I run it to make sure I stay efficient and stay on task, stay, you know, within my plan. Um, I think there, there's a lot of little things that you can do, you know, when it comes to, to sitting down on stand, just, you know, you picture this. If you're going to make 15 stands a day, in that example of you can get 1.5 stands in an hour, um, if I screw around and waste four minutes a stand, okay, that's not a lot. I mean, that could be you sitting there, you know, dicking with the remote. That could be you just getting situated in your seat. That could be you and your buddy sitting there trying to figure out exactly where you're going to sit and, and everything there. That could be you just lollygagging back to the truck instead of really kind of walking fast and, and pushing it a little bit. I mean, it's easy, very easy to burn four or five extra minutes per stand. But keep that in mind, if you're making 15 stands a day and you're burning four to five minutes a stand, well, you just pissed away, you know, 60 to 75 minutes of your day because of that time. Now, at the end of the day, that's going to be essentially one and a half to maybe two and a half less stands you're going to be able to get in, which in a contest, that could be a coyote or two, which can make the difference. So keep that in mind. Every minute does matter. Um, you know, and if you're pushing hard and you're not screwing around, you're you're just getting set up as quickly and efficiently as possible, that's going to save you a lot of time right there. Um, just understanding, I mean, just just simple things like having your call ready to go, um, as I'm walking out to set the call down, um, I already know exactly where I'm going to sit. I'm having my remote fired up on ready to go. So as soon as I set down, you know, for me, I'm getting my swagger bipod set already. Um, I'm basically hitting play, you know, as I'm getting that stuff set up, you know, which saves me a few seconds there. Um, and then having a set time, you know, how long am I going to sit on these stands and, and, and sticking to that. And not saying, ah, you know, I don't know. I feel like we need to sit here a little bit longer. Nope. You know, it was a stand. We gave it the right amount of time. We played the sounds we wanted to play. 
there just isn't a coyote here. Let's get on to the next one, you know, and, and all that adds up at the end of the day. So that would be my biggest, you know, thing when it comes to efficiency is just have a plan, stick to that plan, push hard, um, in a contest day. And, and I think, you know, you're just going to get in that many more stands and hopefully, you know, kill that many more coyotes, which makes the difference between first and, and second sometimes. Next question comes from lights out Oki coyote. This question is this, given your experience, I'd like to hear how you go about finding properties out of your home state, how you can, <clears throat> how you make contact with property owners and then planning trips, including obtaining any necessary license and permits. You know, this is one of my favorite things to do. I, you know, I love traveling and, and hunting coyotes in new areas. Um, probably more so I, I just really love the challenge of testing, you know, myself going to a new environment somewhere I've never been. Um, you never know what you're going to get. It may suck. You may not kill hardly any coyotes at all, but you know, you never know when you're going to hit it just right. And, and things are going to work out. And to me, that's the fun of it, of, of just seeing new country and, and putting your skills to test calling in different types of train. Um, to me, that's really how you better yourself as a coyote hunter, you know, going back to the same stands you've made for years you're not making yourself a better coyote hunter doing that because you're just falling into a rut. You're doing the same things over and over and over. To me, you're not, you're not really testing yourself. You're not advancing your skill set um, by, by just doing the same thing over and over. You know, a lot, I think a lot of guys fall into this category is, you know, you've been hunting the same properties, the same areas. You always know where you're going to sit. You always have a pretty good idea of where the coyotes are going to come from, but you've, you know, a lot of guys failed, have failed to realize really the true process of what's really happening. Why is it, why is this stand successful? Why do the coyotes come from where they always come from? Um, you know, is there maybe a better option? Have I really looked into this? Maybe there's a better option. Maybe there's a different spot I can call from that. I can call the same coyotes, but I'm, I'm just a better spot to kill the coyotes or whatever it may be. Um, but when you go to hunt new places, you are forced to test yourself. You are forced to really see what you know. And, and do you really understand the whole process of calling coyotes? And that's what I love about it. And, um, you know, there's, there's several things, you know, for me, Onyx, the Onyx hunt app is probably the biggest thing nowadays that, that guys can use when it comes to finding new properties, especially planning a trip somewhere. Um, you know, for example, if you're looking to go to kind of some of the Western states, Southwestern states, you know, for example, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, uh, Eastern Oregon, you know, states like that, you know, there's a ton of public ground. And I really think in those states where you have pretty much equal amounts or more of public ground than you do have private, I really think there's, there's pockets of, of good hunting that can be found. You know, as you get in some of the Midwestern states, you know, the public access isn't near what it, what it is out West. So I think, you know, the lower percentage of public means it's probably going to get hunted a little bit harder. So your better luck is probably going to be on that, that private ground. Um, you know, that's the great thing about Onyx Hunt. I'm sure most of you listen to this probably have it and use it. Um, you know, if you don't, you know, you can see, you know, public or private land ownership on there. Um, it'll kind of get, it'll, it'll give you an address though. The downside to it, it doesn't give you a phone number. And, and if you're scouting from your couch, looking to maybe plan a trip somewhere to go hunt coyotes, 
that's the tough part is, okay, I, I see this ranch, I see this farm ground, I see the people that own it, but how do I get a hold of them? And, you know, really, you know, technology, you can Google, I've Googled stuff before, trying to find names of people in the white pages um, and things like that. And that has worked. And that has given me phone numbers to make contact ahead of time. Um, a lot of times it just takes you going out there, having some sort of plan in place, whether you sat there on the couch for a couple of evenings before you made your trip and you started plotting out, dropping waypoints and saying, okay, this is an area we need to go check out. This is maybe somebody we stop in and talk to. Um, I'll pull up the satellite image. That's a great thing about it. You can pull up the satellite image and somewhere within their property, obviously you can pull up the satellite image. You can see where the, the farmhouse is, the ranch house. And you okay, okay, that's probably where somebody lives that that knows something about this area. Let's let's go pull in there and let's go talk to that that person. Um, and they may tell you no, they may tell you, yeah, you know, who knows what will happen once you stop in there and talk to them. But that gives you, you know, an in, I guess, you know, to say the least there. Now, in some of those areas where, you know, you have public mixed in with private, a lot of those guys are going to elect to go to the public because I don't know, it's weird. Like guys are afraid to stop in and talk to people. They're afraid to be told, no, I don't really know what it is, but um, you know, don't be afraid to, to, to talk to some, some farmers and ranchers about hunting coyotes. You know, not every farmer and rancher hates coyotes. I can tell you that, you know, I think there's this misconception that, Oh, everybody hates coyotes. Everybody will let you hunt coyotes. Nah, unfortunately it's not that way. You know, I get told no a lot um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so it's not always a shoe in just when you tell them you're going to hunt coyotes, but you know, they may be able to give you the name, the name and number of a neighbor that might let you hunt. Um, you know, they may be able to connect you with somebody else. You know, that networking is, is a pretty important deal. That's probably how I've lined up, you know, some of the private ground that I hunt in various States is through networking, whether I know somebody and they say, Hey, I know a guy down in wherever, you know, might give him a call you know, and you get those phone numbers and things like that. So networking is huge. Um, just visiting with, with people about coyote hunting, whether you're making comments with people on social media, um, maybe you still get on some of the, like a predator masters forum or something like that. I mean, obviously guys aren't going to tell you exactly where their honey holes are and they're not going to give up probably information on there. Um, but it might be a, a few pieces of, of useful information that at least point you in a decent direction to, to start your search. Um, but, but Onyx is huge, I think. And then once you get out there and start hunting, Onyx is a huge asset to have because now I can see where I'm at. If you do stop in and talk to a rancher, you can start outlining where everything, you know, he has is at. Um, you know, if you're, you know, especially in some of the Midwest, Eastern kind of states where stuff's chopped up you know, one farmer may own 10 little pieces, but they're scattered across the whole County. So on X is perfect for that. Cause I can start plotting out where all these pieces are um, and, and trying to figure out where, you know, I can make stands on all these places. Um, you know, the last piece of this, when it comes to planning a trip, you know, you got to look at time of year, um, especially when you start talking about Western States, even some of the Midwestern States, even, you know, deer seasons, big game seasons are kind of the, they rule the roost, you know, you have to kind of understand, um, you know, what season's going on. For example, here in Nebraska, you know, we have a nine day rifle deer season right during the rut in November. And, you know, through our rules and laws, you know, you can't legally hunt coyotes with anything bigger than a 22 long rifle if you don't have a deer tag in your pocket, you know, so you know, if you're planning a trip to Nebraska to hunt coyotes middle of November, that's probably something that's pretty important to, to understand. 
you know, for example, you're playing a trip up to Wyoming, you know, and you're planning on hunting a lot of, you know, BLM public ground, you probably don't want to plan your trip for opening, you know, weekend of the rifle antelope season, because there's going to be, you know, the orange army out there cruising every two track, you know, shooting at antelope and things like that, you know, so it's going to take a little research on your part to make sure you're not going to show up and, and, you know, be interfered with by, you know, the big game hunters. Cause obviously that's going to affect, you know, the coyote hunting as well. Um, you know, another thing too, weather is a big one. Obviously you're planning a trip down to the Southwest, you know, you don't have to worry about weather, but you know, some of these Northern half States, you know, it's later in the winter, you know, you may have a big snowstorm, a big blizzard comes through, you know, two weeks before you're planning on going out. And now everything, you know, all your access is limited. Um, everything that, you know, that, that you wanted to get to, you can't because all the two tack tracks are drifted in and you can't get anywhere. And then obviously now your, your trip just kind of was a bust because you can't get to where you think the coyotes are going to be. Um, so yeah, those are some few things that I'll always look at. Um, if I'm planning on a trip, you know, going somewhere as well. And then kind of the last thing you asked about was the, the necessary licenses and permits. You know, and this is important because every, it seems like every state is different when it comes to, to this, you know, for example, Nebraska, you know, residents, we don't need any sort of license to hunt coyotes, but as a non-resident, you have to buy a small game hunting license. Um, you go to Wyoming, you know, no license is required. You go to Colorado, you got to have a small game license. You go to Utah, Nevada, no license is required, but if you go to Idaho and, uh, Oregon, you have to buy a, a hunting license. Um, then you start going down to Southern States like Arizona, you know, you need a hunting license, but then that hunting license is good for bobcats, coyotes, and fox. Whereas if some of these Northern States, you know, it only counts for coyotes. If you want to shoot fox and bobcat, you got to have a, a special fur bears permit on top of that. Um, so yeah, definitely lots. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the same across the board uh, in every state. So, you know, just jumping on the, the website of the game and fish of that state, you know, even making a phone call, you can figure it out pretty quick to make sure you have the right licenses uh, before you go. Cause obviously that's pretty, pretty dang important. Next question comes from shuddy boy 93. And his question is this, what approach would you take to hunting flat as a pancake farm ground mile by mile, perfect grid sections of land with a shelter belt running North, South and East, West, breaking the section into quarters. Most of my stands, I go knees to chest through snow for a half mile walk into the stand and still get busted walking into the stand. Sometimes they can see my pickup parked half a mile away and they check up. I'm extremely jealous of the 200 to 300 yard walks into stands that you always talk about. Well, this is a very specific question. I think, you know, there are certain parts of the country where, you know, unfortunately you don't have the cover. You don't have the role in the terrain. You don't have, um, you know, some of the, the cool things that maybe we might run into out West or even Midwest, Southeast, wherever you're at. Um, so let's take a look at, you know, kind of look at this now, you know, when I hunt down with Rick in Eastern Kansas and people, people give me crap about this all the time. I, I refer to when I go to East Kansas, that that's really very similar to Eastern coyote hunting. And you may be rolling your eyes right now and say, Oh, our Eastern coyotes are way different. Well, how much different is the train? where you're at than Eastern Kansas In Eastern Kansas. When I go with Rick, there's a dirt road every mile, almost, you know, everything's broken in. There's little, nobody owns. It's very rare to have somebody that owns the entire section. They may own the half section or the quarter section. I think a ton of areas 
you know, in that Midwest and throughout the East, Southeast, you know, are exactly like this. You know, you may actually have bigger chunks of ground. You might not even have roads every, every mile, but to me, it doesn't get any worse than that as far as breaking up the, the terrain. Um, and to me, that's what it's about. There's a lot of stuff about East versus West coyotes. And, you know, I've had a chance to hunt them in Georgia, East Kansas, Illinois, all, you know, all the Western States. And from my experience, I can tell you coyotes are coyote. Most guys just don't understand, you know, the difference in how to attack that terrain, how to attack that land access. Um, when it comes to some of those, you know, Midwestern and Eastern States, as opposed to the Western stuff. So, this is more probably a, you know, I'm assuming this is country, you know, probably some country, maybe in Iowa, maybe, uh, you know, Eastern South Dakota, Southern Minnesota, um, probably even through some of Illinois, you know, not a lot of roll in some of that train, not a lot of timber, um, maybe even some parts of North Dakota, I'm guessing. Um, but specifically, the great thing about having a road on every side of that section would be your access meaning I can come in from any side of that section I want, depending on which, which direction the wind's blowing at, you know, and so I can get the wind in my face, whatever side of that section I need to go to. Um, another great thing about this setup that you talked about is I, I do, you do have cover. If there's a tree row belt running down the middle, cutting this thing into section, I can use that, that tree line to disguise, you know, to, to minimize my movement, you know, as I'm walking into the stand, I can use that tree row to park my truck behind a certain, a certain angle, um, and, and, and walk in there. Now, what I don't understand on this question is if you're talking a mile by a mile, I would assume that a majority of the coyotes, I would assume that are probably towards the center of that section. So for me, I probably wouldn't be walking in there a half mile to the middle of the section, right where all the coyotes are probably going to be. I mean, the coyotes probably aren't going to be bedded up hundred yards off the dirt road when they can walk, when they can go down that tree line and get in towards the middle of that section where they're, they're just going to be not disturbed. There's going to be less pressure there for them. So I probably wouldn't walk all the way in there. I might walk down that tree road two or 300 yards just to get away from the dirt road enough. And then I would start calling now using that quarter method, you know, wherever I thought the coyotes, you know, probably somewhere towards that middle of that section you know, I would use the opposite side of that tree row to walk in at. And yeah, if I'm walking on one side of that tree row, if you visualize this in your head where this, this tree row makes an X right through the section and divides it into four quarters, really the only coyotes that are going to see me are the ones that are in that quarter that I'm walking on that side of the tree row on. If a coyote is anywhere in those other three quarters, it should not see me walking in. Now, basically I'm giving up that quarter. That's probably going to be, to me, I'm going to use the roads and that's going to be the downwind quarter of that section. Meaning if a coyote comes from there, he's probably going to win me to begin with. So I'm going to walk down that tree row, keeping on that downwind quarter. And if a coyote is out in that quarter, oh, well, you know, he, they were probably going to bust me anyway. They were going to get downwind before I ever called them in. And then as I get down that tree row, two or 300 yards, I'm probably going to pop through the tree row and now I'm going to set up looking over to the upwind quarter to my right. And then I have the other two kind of upwind quarters um, that are out ahead of me that, you know, obviously the coyotes haven't seen me. Then I'm probably going to walk my call into that upwind quarter. I'm going to walk it out there 50, 60, 80 yards in case a coyote does come down the tree line. You know, he'll pop out, want to look out at the call and I can shoot him. 
Um, and then that really keeps, you know, hopefully the coyote does not, you know, show up back in that downwind quarter because I'm, I'm going to have my vehicle parked as well. I'm going to drive past that, that tree row line and I'm going to park it there. So really the only way the coyotes can ever see my truck is if he shows up in that downwind quarter. Um, so really that's the only thing I'm giving up is that downwind quarter. There's really other, no other way to do it, but that still leaves me the other three quarters of that section that the coyote, if the coyote shows up in, in any of those three quarters, he won't be able to see my truck. He hasn't, won't be able to win me. And he didn't see me walk into the stand. Um, and that's really about as efficient as you can do a stand like that. Um, you, you know, a lot of guys are jealous of Western hunting. And even though our areas aren't laid out like that, you know, at least a lot of the stuff I hunt, visibility is, is one of the biggest challenges. You know, you picture if you can sit on a stand and I can see 600 yards, guess what? The coyote can see 600 yards as well. So getting into stands without the coyotes spotting us is sometimes the biggest challenge that we face out here in some of this big Western hunting, you know, some of these big open pastures and, and things like that, because you know, there's just not the terrain to use to, to get into your stands without them seeing you, you know, the Midwestern States, when I'm like hunting Eastern Kansas and some of that stuff, obviously there's lots of tree lines and all kinds of, you know, roll to the train where getting into your stand is, is extremely easy. Um, you know, but you start talking some of this big, wide open flat ground. That's really one of the biggest challenges is getting into that stand. Now, sometimes what people do, um, a, a technique that you might not have heard of before is called drop stands. And this is a technique that people use when you get into this flat country and there's, there's really no place to hide a vehicle. And if you have multiple hunters, you know, as a matter of fact, the other day, uh, my boys and my dad were hunting and, and we were down kind of in Northern Colorado and it's similar country. It's big, wide open prairie country. Um, not a lot of roll to the train. Sometimes there's not a lot of places to hide a truck. So, you know, we did a couple drop stands and basically what my dad did, he, we would drive in there. He would drop me and the boys off and then he'd turn around and drive the truck back out of sight and we would make the stand. And, you know, then, you know, we'd call him on the phone and he'd come and pick us up. And that was about the best way that we could, we could hunt that area and still get the vehicle hit, you know? So that's an option too, um, to think about, you know, if you have partners, you know, maybe somebody that goes with you that, Hey, they can drop you off, off the dirt road. You can walk in that tree line, walk up to a certain point in that flat area, um, and they can drive up the road a mile and, and wait for you to call them and, and come pick them up. So just maybe something to think about, uh, adding a little trick to the, to your bag the next time you're out there and you, and you run into that problem of visibility and, you know, trying to hide the truck and, and things like that. The last thing I want to mention about this, um, you know, as far as the snow goes, you know, and I know I hear this, a lot of guys, you know, walking on that crunchy snow, um, you know, and if you're busting through snow and probably a lot of the, you know, especially some of the guys that I talked to from like Wisconsin and Michigan and stuff where it's lots and lots of timber, you know, you're crunching through snow, not a lot of wind. So obviously, you know, if it's pretty calm, obviously that's all going to make a difference. You know, that sounds going to carry you into there further. And if the coyote hears you busting through the snow drifts and crunching the snow, it's probably going to be, you know, one of those things that's going to be, uh, you know, detrimental to, to what, you know, you're trying to figure out there. So, um, you know, sometimes I only like to walk in as far as I have to. Um, and I think that's a key there. You know, if you can get away with not having to bust snow and crunch snow and getting there, my, my assumption is this, that probably the, the snow has been drifted in these tree rows specifically, you know, what Shuddy boy is talking about here is there's probably drifts right on the tree row, you know? So if I have to loop out into the actual field or farm country 
100 yards to keep myself from busting through that snow and then cut into the tree row. Hey, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and that's maybe just going to minimize the the sound and and uh, obviously not to whip your ass trying to walk in there too through, you know, need a chest deep snow trying to get into a dang coyote stand all day long. So keep that in mind. But uh, curious, you know, I'll be curious, Shetty boy, if you listen to this, you know, or if somebody else is listening that have the same thing, you know, um, like I said, I don't have a chance to hunt a lot of stuff like this just because we don't have that type of type of setup where I'm at. Um, but I'd be curious to see how that worked out for you. You know, if that's how you've been hunting it, if it's been a little bit different. Um, maybe you've maybe haven't quite done it that way, or maybe you're going to try doing it that way. I'd be curious to see how that turns out. So hit me up. Uh, you know, if you try that different, you have some success. I'd like to hear about that. So last question here comes from Tate roads Two, And the question is this, does the full moon affect the movement of coyotes or do you change up your calling sequences for a full moon? He's specifically talking about nighttime hunting. So for some reason, this is a question I get a lot, you know, about, about moon phases and how it affects coyotes. You know, I'm going to back up quite a, quite a few years, you know, back in the mid two thousands when I was filming the, the coyote craze DVD series, um, maybe you had a chance to watch some of these, but I would always put a, I called it the coyote craze call log on there. And at this point, I was keeping logs or journal, I guess, whatever you want to call it, of every coyote I called in. And I would keep track of what the temperature was, what time of day did I kill this coyote. Uh, I'd put the date on there. Then I could look at what the moon phase was at that particular time. Really just trying to maybe find some sort of pattern. Um, you know, hey, you know, whatever that pattern may be. Um, and I did this for probably five years. Um, so hundreds and hundreds of coyotes, obviously on this log, and I could never find any correlation to anything, you know, full moon, new moon, half moon quarter. It didn't matter. You know, sometimes we'd kill coyotes on a full moon, um, you know, at 1130, other times we, you know, kill them at 330 on a new, I mean, there was just no rhyme or reason to it. So finally, I just got to the point. I'm like, ah, this is a lot of, a lot of effort trying to keep track of all this crap when there's really nothing you can do. And even if, you know, and another thing too, I always thought about is what if I really did see something there? What if, what if I really found something that says, you know what, on, on full moon days, you know, uh, coyotes just really didn't want to travel very far to the call, you know, meaning the only coyotes I killed those day were, you know, within the first couple minutes, meaning I was set up right on top of those coyotes. You know, what if I did find something like that? Does that, would that have changed really what I did? Uh, meaning, the next time I had a day to go coyote hunting and it was a full moon, or would I say, nah, I'm just going to stay home today because, you know, the coyote hunting may be tougher. No, I would have still went coyote hunting. So really people ask these questions, but really, what are you going to do with the answers? If I really gave you an answer, if there really was an answer, are you going to stay home that day? <laughs> because I might tell you that the coyote hunting might be crappier because of a full moon or a new moon or whatever it was. Um, you know, I doubt that. I really doubt that you know, most, most people have a set amount of days, set amount of time that they can go coyote hunting. And if they can, they go. And that's the way I am. I I'm going hunting. Well, I don't care if it's windy, full moon, cold, warm. It doesn't matter. If I have a chance to go coyote hunting, I'm going coyote hunting. Um, and I'm going to, you know, throw a bunch of different things out there and, and hopefully find what works that day. But so for me, no, the, the question to this Tate is no, I, I haven't found an effect on full moon, you know, day, night, um, one thing I have found, and it's 
it probably relates nothing to your success rate on calling coyotes, but over the years when I've been out locating coyotes at night, you know, meaning I'm in a new area, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the coyote densities are in this area. Um, so we'll drive around and every couple of miles we'll stop and turn off the truck and we'll fire up a few loan house and try to get some coyotes to howl back. And just, just to get an idea of, of what there are for coyotes in that area. I have noticed that coyotes seem to howl better when the full, when the moon is full or when the moon is up off the horizon, you know, sometimes obviously the moon's not out all night. Sometimes the moon might not come up till nine, 10, 11 at night, you know? Um, but once the moon comes up, um, it seems like the coyotes howl better, which really that has nothing to do with calling. It's more so locating coyotes and, and finding out what there's there. But, you know, as far as anything else related to the, the moon cycle, I haven't found it. Um, you know, from, from a tactics standpoint, when you are night hunting, for me, the full moon means you have to hide a little bit better. You know, coyotes obviously have, have pretty good night vision. I don't know exactly what it is. Obviously, they can see better at night than we can. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to the night hunting tactics, most guys are standing up, you know, you got your gun mounted up on your tripod. You're probably out. You might be standing in the middle of a field, you know, where it's open all around you, where you can see coyotes coming. Um, obviously with no moon, you know, I think you can get away with doing that a little easier. You know, the coyotes have to get in pretty close to you to actually see you in the dark. Um, but with a, with a full moon, you know, now I'm looking more cover, you know, can I stand here next to these hay bales? Can I stand here next to the center pivot, um, next to this fence line? You know, I'm going to park my truck and hide my truck a little bit better, um, when it comes to full, full moon hunting at night. Um, that's really you know, and like I said, I'm no expert at night hunting. Um, that's based off of a handful of times that I've done it. Um, and I'm sure you guys listen to this probably the same way, but that's really all I'm going to worry about when it comes to the full moon is the tactics as far as my setups, how I'm hiding my truck. Um, just because of the visibility aspect, the coyotes can see much better at night. So hopefully that answered your question. Um, you know, that was a lot of little info there. Hopefully I didn't get off tangent too much there. Um, but, uh, but hopefully, you know, we'll do this again. You know, if I didn't get to your question, man, keep asking them on Instagram. Um, you know, we'll get to it eventually. Well, guys, I want to thank you guys for listening to another episode here on Eastman's predator pros. Um, you know, you guys, your support has made this the number one podcast out there on the predator hunting side anyway. Um, so couldn't do it without you guys, you know, if you are listening on Spotify or iTunes, you know, that five-star rating goes a long way. You know, we couldn't do this without sponsors. Um, and that's, you know, really what they look at. They're looking at, okay, how successful is this podcast? You know, what are some of the comments and reviews? And, um, you know, that goes a long way. So if you wouldn't mind taking the time to, to rate that with a five-star review, that'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, it'd go a long way. Um, and if you're not following me on Instagram, you can do that. Uh, you can find me at, at Jeff Nimnick and that's Jeff with the G, the G off version. Um, just search that G E O F F. I'll probably be one of the first ones that come up. Um, and then, like I said, I'm going to do, uh, you know, some of these questions and answers in the future as well. So you want to get on here and uh, maybe, maybe have me discuss your question. That'll be your best chance to do it. And then like always, if you're looking for more information about myself, uh, maybe some of the coyote schools I put on seminars, I'll be doing at sports shows coming up this, this winter, uh, some information on the last stand TV show that we put on YouTube, you know, whatever it may be, you can visit my website at coyotecraze.com. As always, we can't do this without the sponsors, so I need to thank them. We got Onyx Hunt, Swagger Bipods, 
Lucky Duck Predator Calls, Hornady, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Cryptech, and Sig Sauer Optics. And of course, Eastman's huge thanks goes out to them for putting this all together, bringing this content to you guys on all the platforms. Uh, be sure and check out all they have going on at Eastman's.com. So until next time, appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you right here on the Eastman's Predator Pros podcast.